Get your gear ready. This is a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. That's right. It's a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation, a podcast dedicated to guiding you along your innovation expedition. I'm Ben Tingi, your host. My Sherpa colleague, Jay Gerhardt, is with me in the studio again. Hey, Jay. Good morning to you, Benjamin. <laughs> Good morning. And today we welcome Karen Dillon to the podcast, the former editor of Harvard Business Review, a New York Times bestselling author and a highly sought after keynote speaker. Karen has recently co-authored three books with Professor Clayton Christensen of the Harvard Business School, including The Prosperity Paradox, How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty, Competing Against Luck, The Story of Innovation and Customer Choice, and How You Measure Your Life. Currently, she continues her editing contributions to the Harvard Business Review and to the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation, and is also editorial director of Banyan Global Family Advisors. She's also the author of the Harvard Business Review Guide to Office Politics and previously served as deputy editor of Inc. Magazine. She was named by Ashoka as one of the world's most influential and inspiring women, which will quickly become apparent as we begin our conversation. Karen, welcome to a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very glad to be here. Well, Jay and I are, are big fans of your work and are truly honored to speak with you today. Before we begin, a quick message to our listeners. Please hit that subscribe button on your podcast app and then share this episode on social media. Engage with us on Twitter using the hashtag Innovation Engine and connect with us on LinkedIn. We'll also provide some links to Karen's research and books and Twitter handle in the show notes. And we strongly encourage you to purchase a copy of any of her books. And here we go. I'll start by asking a couple introductory questions to you, Karen, so our listeners can get to know you better. Then we'll shift to open Q&A. How's that sound? That sounds great. Let's go for it. All right. Okay, Karen, fill in the blank. I wanted to be a blank when I grew up. Now I'm a blank, and they both blank. Okay, so I wanted to be a writer growing up, and now I'm a writer, and they're both <laughs> the same and fantastic. <laughs> That was an easy one for you, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that was actually even when I actually I really wanted to work in magazines in some way when I was little. Even I would look at them, you know, the pictures and things when I was little. So maybe the right answer was a magazine writer. But now I'm a book writer and a magazine writer, and they're both great. When, Terrific. How, how did you know you wanted to be a writer growing up? Were you just a big reader? I was a big reader, but uh, I just always found it easy to write. I liked writing. It was one, you know, it was one of those things. Even in college, it's one of the classes that that was almost never the homework for me. I mean, it was, but I enjoyed reading. I enjoyed writing. The other things were harder, and it it just was probably what I was naturally most good at. But um, I just I love the idea that you can create something from nothing, right? With your mind, with your words, with fingertips on. And in my day, it was a typewriter and then became a, a keyboard at a, at a computer. You can create with uh, your words and your thought, you can shape something that will be there forever. You know, that you've created and put something into the universe. I really love that. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, and we're so glad that that was your chosen profession because, uh, um, we've learned so much from you. So Karen, as the former editor of, 
Harvard Business Review and Inc. Magazine before that and American Lawyer and Legal Business before that. Not only have you consumed a, a substantial amount of business and legal advice, but you've added your perspective and spread your influence by authoring and, and co-authoring several books. So as an expert in communication and writing, what tips would you share about making theory come alive to a reader? So when I first started working with Clay, you know, he's, everything that he does is based on theory. But I learned from him really quickly that theory is it's really important to understand what causes what and why. That's the purpose of theory. But it comes alive through stories, through anecdotes. It's so much easier for all of us to absorb and process uh, something that might be quite complicated when we can visualize it, we can imagine it, we can relate to it. So to me, the gift is being able to take a very complex idea and bring it to life for people. It's the same way that so many of us become far more aware of complicated issues by a truly great documentary. You know, it's almost a movie. It is a movie. You know, and, and what I try to do with the writing is make it a little movie in your mind. And if you can do that, I think you just bring so many more people into complicated ideas in a way that they truly understand and can talk about and share it. You know, it becomes catalytic. So for me, it's the, the foundation has to be there. It's really important. You have to know what you're trying to convey, but it, you, you, it blooms for people when you share it through stories or case studies. Well, your most recent book, The Prosperity Paradox, that really comes through. There's a lot of great stories there. And we were fortunate to talk with your colleague, Afoso Ajomo, in episode 40 and had a great discussion with him about the prosperity paradox. But that book focuses on global economic development, particularly in less economically developed regions such as Africa. As you've been talking about the book since its release – have you seen interest in applying its perspective locally here in less prosperous parts of the United States in communities that we see that are lagging in prosperity? I have. I've had a lot of people sort of ask, is the same question, is this relevant here or is this you're talking about these, you know, far flung, impoverished parts of the world that we all have sympathy for, but, you know, it's not part of our everyday lives. And I would say that the theories in the book are just as relevant in Appalachia as they are in, you know, Addis Ababa. It's, it is about finding opportunity where people overlook, you know, a whole bunch of human beings as potential customers because they are not currently consumers. We call them non-consumers. They're not currently buying a product or service, but identifying something that they're struggling with that you can create a product or service to help them make progress with that. And that is relevant. I mean, originally, the, a big part of what we talked about in the book is America is actually one of the best examples of market-creating innovations, the, 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 the trigger for what we think will help bring countries out of poverty. Um, so, yes, it's very relevant. Uh, it's just understanding the potential power of an innovation that can create a product or service for people for whom there is no other option or better option, and, and in turn, as a business is built, create jobs and opportunities. What's the most meaningful reaction that you've received about the prosperity paradox so far? I think for me personally, it was actually in doing some of the interviews with the um, people that we focused on in the book. So it was before it became a book, but talking to um, individuals who accomplished something, you know, against the Herculean task against impossible odds, but yet they built something, they built a company, they've changed lives, and they have a growth opportunity. I think having them 
maybe take a minute to sort of say, yeah, I guess this was hard and I did accomplish something. Maybe we helped them validate, you know, that what they had done perhaps by instinct actually made sense in the theory of the book. That was really fun for me. So, so meaningfully was almost the keep on going that we could give those people who had, who were doing really good things in parts of the world that you would never think uh, provided fertile opportunity. Yeah, that's really awesome. It kind of, it, the, the people who provided the ingredients to the book were able to reflect on what they've done and, and actually understand it better through the process exactly. of working you through it. You give them language you. for understanding what they had, what they had maybe instinctively, in some cases they had built it on Clay's theories, but, um, they, I think probably when you're so focused on building, you may think you're alone or you're, you're against the tide in such difficult circumstances and maybe taking a moment to realize not only have I accomplished this, but this makes sense to the reason this is going to succeed. That was pretty gratifying to be able to talk to them about that. That's, that's great. So in, in the world of improv, we do something called a time dash where we might jump back or forward in time. So we're going to jump back okay. in time just a little bit. Okay. In the acknowledgement section of how will you measure your life, you start with the sentence, meeting Clayton Christensen changed my life. Tell us about that very first meeting and how it ultimately changed your life. Sure. So I knew who Clay Christensen was uh, when I was at Harvard Business Review. I was the editor of Harvard Business Review magazine, and he, of course, is one of the most famous thought leaders in the world. But I had never met him. I just had seen his work in the pages of our magazine. And one particular spring day, we I was planning a double issue for Harvard Business Review where you need a little more content than normal uh, and I was just casting around for an idea for something to fill the art, fill the magazine that wouldn't be too onerous to, to create. And for whatever reason, it just occurred to me that maybe I could do something about the soon-to-be graduates of Harvard Business School. It was the spring of 2010. And I remember thinking, oh, I bet the, <laughs> it's going to be interesting to know what these guys are thinking having applied to business school when the economy was booming a few weeks into getting to Harvard Business School and, and those tuition bills, the recession took hold. And then they had two years to kind of prepare themselves for the going out into the world. And so I thought, oh, maybe it'll be interesting to see if they've recalibrated their definition of success while they've been in there. And in calling around to students, somebody mentioned in passing that Clay had given, had been asked to and given a sort of commencement speech, not at commencement, but for the, for the class that was about to graduate at Harvard Business School that they had found really moving. And that was sort of all I knew, all I heard, and I just called up his office and said, can I come over and maybe we'll fashion whatever, whatever you said into some kind of an essay for Harvard Business Review. And what I now know is fairly remarkable based on his schedule and his how in demand he is. The answer was, yes, yeah, sure, And when we scheduled me to come over very quickly. So I went over really just thinking, what's the fastest way I can help him draft something that's going to be a quick win for the magazine? met him for the first time with my little digital recorder in hand and just thought I'll sit there and ask him questions about whatever it is he talked about, turn into something, I'll be done. But in the hour and a half I was in there with him, what we talked about was became the subject of our, our book, How We Measure Life, which was effectively the last lecture that he gives to his students every semester when he's teaching. It's, I have given you my best theories, my best thinking on how to have make successful decisions in your career. But more important is making sure that you use this thinking to have a successful life. And as we talked about these very business school topics, resource allocation, strategy formation, where motivation comes from, things like that, 
I realized that all the theories that he shared with his students about how you make choices that lead you to be happy, to, to, to have this most successful strategy for the life you want, et cetera, were incredibly relevant to me. You know, he, he talks to 20-somethings usually about this. I was 40-something, but it just completely stopped me in my tracks to think about what was the strategy for my, for my life. Was I executing it? I would have told you it was one set of things, but I knew for sure as I stood in the parking lot of Harvard Business School after that conversation that I was not executing the strategy for my life that I thought I was. I was going down a different path where clearly my work was a priority, but my family and my friends and, and my relationships outside of work were not. And had I made choices in my life very deliberately, and if I didn't want to be so far off track of what I aspired to for my own life, I had to sort of reckon with that. And that was the beginning of my taking a full year with my husband and with goodwill from Harvard Business Review to eventually make the decision to leave Harvard Business Review and kind of reshape my life. Um, and, and since then, I have. I've still continued to work, but just in different ways. I've had the good fortune to uh, work with Clay now in three books. I work at Banyan, which is a consulting firm for family businesses. I've pieced together things that are incredibly fulfilling for me, but also allow me to shape my personal life so that my, my family and friends are really the priority. So it really did literally change my life. I, I walked away from being the editor of Harvard Business Review to doing a completely different palette of things and I think gaining lost time for what I had sacrificed in the years before that with my family, gaining it back. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. That's it. It was real to you. You didn't just co-write a book. You lived it. No, I lived it. I, he, he, that's why I love the idea. I love Clay's ideas because the point is you can take this and apply it in your own context. If you understand the theory and how it works, it's, it becomes a tool for you. And it became a tool for me. And I really, I believed in it enough to rebuild my life using those tools, the, the theories in, in that book. So yes, it's very real to me. Wow. Well, your co-author on that book, How You Measure Your Life, was James Allworth, who is on the Exponent podcast with Ben Thompson. And that podcast has been an influence and an inspiration for us as as we've started our own. And uh, and he co-wrote How You Measure Your Life fresh out of his Harvard MBA. And so it's interesting to have this uh, – uh, the, the the trio of you working on that all together. What did you learn from James that was perhaps unexpected? And, and what do you remember most fondly about your collaboration? So all of James was unexpected for me because he was uh, just out of, I had written the article with Clay in the magazine first, and then Clay asked him to stay on as he was graduating from Harvard Business School to be a fellow, a research fellow, basically. And they decided together they were going to work on a book that fleshed out the ideas from the article we wrote together in the magazine. And then I came in as the third person after they had sort of advanced it a lot. So he was young, you know, ready ready for the world, had been in Clay's class and, and was very eager to challenge thinking. And, you know, there was nothing about James that wasn't thought-provoking all the time. And that turned out to be an incredibly effective trio, the three of us, you know, because I'm in there as a middle-aged mom who's had a career in, you know, sort of serious business writing. Clay's in there as the thought leader, the, 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 the theory guy, but Clay likes to be challenged. Uh, he likes to see uh, what are the anomalies of my theory? How can I make it stronger? What does it not explain? And James was trying to get his hands around and truly understand these theories and see, you know, does it apply? When does it not apply? Um, and so somehow the span of the three of us, and I think I said in my acknowledgments, but we literally, you know, we spanned ages, we spanned probably politics, we spanned 
religious spectrum. Clay's very religious, and James is an avowed atheist, and I describe myself as somewhere in the middle. It was just, it became very potent that we could have very robust discussions to understand, apply, think about, challenge each other without it ever being disrespectful and still collaborate and produce something that we're all really proud of. So it was a fantastic experience. James and I, actually, James also, this is how the age gap appeared. James taught me about Dropbox and um, <laughs> Skype and Google Docs. And so when I, I had moved to London, literally after leaving HBR, my husband's British, and we wanted to give our kids some time there. So I had moved to London. James and I did our work on the book almost entirely over Skype, Google Docs, and, and, uh, and wow. uh, Dropbox. And I, I remember for the first maybe three or four weeks, I kept asking him to send me the attached. Could you send me the, the Dropbox file, please? And he's like, you can get it yourself. But yes, here it is. It took me a really long time to understand the concept <laughs> that it was there and I could download it just as easily as he could. But we worked together virtually. So we really did. We would often, we would you know, structure what we were going to say. We, I would literally be at the keyboard while he was on Google Docs and he, you know, we, we, we talk as I was writing. I've never had that close a scrutiny of my literal typing, but it meant that we, we produced something together that we both felt really good and we sort of debated and hashed things out in real time so that when we were showing drafts to Clay or advancing the argument, we were, we were really aligned. So it was, it was a fa- intense and fantastic experience with someone who, taught me a lot about the new tools the kids today are using that I had no idea about at the time. That's tremendous. And, and why I'm kind of laughing at that is that, you know, we were just talking, we just got back from South by Southwest and one of the very best talks that I saw was Chip Conley. Who, yep, I know who he is. Yeah, yeah, I figured he probably did. And he talked about coming on to Airbnb at the, at age 52 and, and mentoring Brian Chesky and a lot about the, the mutual mentorship that, that you have. So that, that resonates to me because I'm of that upper age. My co-host here is more of the younger age. So we, we have that at work. So uh, that, that's cool. And the collaboration y'all had on that book is tremendous. It's a book that's had a lot of impact on us. I know I've given it to a number of people over the last couple of years. So that is tremendous. So glad. So now we'll go behind door number two. We'll talk about your book, Competing Against Luck. That book is uh, the central theme is jobs to be done theory. And so I'm going to give you a two part question. As you've spoken with organizations about jobs to be done theory, one, have you encountered challenges with getting them to absorb the concept? And two, maybe what's been an instance that has made you really proud of getting the the word out on this theory? Sure. So um, a challenge, I I think the idea of jobs to be done sounds sort of deceptively simple, right? Just identify the job to be done. Our definition is what progress are people trying to make in particular circumstances. I, I think what organizations can make the mistake of doing is kind of come up with their own answer, you know, like imagine the answer, you know, we, I, I like to say you can't fall in love with your solution. You have to fall in love with the job and falling in love with the job, like falling in love with any human being is this constant discovery, constant refinement, constant imp- improvement in your understanding. And the job may shift just like a person may grow and change. So it, it, I think it's all too easy to default to, okay, we want to be the leading blah, blah, blah. And, it, you know, you come up with your own sense from sitting in your own office, you know, away from real users and you sort of lose in the iterations and the excitement internally, you lose 
real connection with what genuine struggle is that people are trying to solve. I think that's easy. I've, I've spoken to a lot of organizations where they announced, not a lot, some have, some have said they've announced, here's what our job to be done is. And to me, it doesn't sound like it, rich enough at all. If you, you've got too simple a thing and somebody declared it from on high, you don't, you haven't given me a sense of the context of it. What, else, what are the emotional pieces of that? What are the social pieces of that? You need to have all the dimensions of what someone is struggling with to design the right solution for it. So I think, I think people may think because it sounds like a simple concept, it's simple. I think you have to do real work and be a student of the job to deeply understand it and continue to innovate and improve that innovation for the job to be done. That is great. That is a great point. Is there a, is there a specific instance where you, you've talked with a group or an organization that you're like, wow, I, I really, I really helped them get it? Um, I, I actually spoke to an organization of, I think I'm going to say it was the Ernst & Young Entrepreneurs of the Year gathering. And they were here in Boston. At, they actually had their event at Harvard um, University. They were, so they're mostly entrepreneurs from around different parts of the world, I think, in particular Ireland, I remember. And after I spoke about it, somebody got up and said, that just rocked my world. Not because, you know, I hadn't, none of these things had occurred to me, but because it made them understand that even as an entrepreneur in a smaller organization, they had the ability to continue to, if they understood their job to be done better than their competitors, that leveled the playing field for them. And, and it was, it does, I don't have to be the best, most expensive, the most, you know, bells and whistles on my product or service. If I'm better at the emotional part of the job to be done, if I'm better at the social part of the job to be done, there's a lot of room for me to be the best, even if I'm not the biggest. And I felt like it was sort of great to see a group of already successful entrepreneurs feel empowered by the idea as opposed to feeling cowed by what the competition could easily do once they had identified the opportunity. It's really easy to feel intimidated by resources coming in, but so many resources get spent on the wrong things, not truly related to the job to be done. They overdevelop the parts that seem cool to them internally and neglect the things that customers really want to solve their problem or their job to be done. So I, I like it when there's sort of a light bulb moment. And I think for entrepreneurs in particular, it's a great leveling. You know, yes, we can compete. If we're better at this, then we can be better at this because I think we do understand our customers better than other people do. So it's, it's a start to hopefully them continuing to grow and seeing opportunity. Yeah, that's great. It's almost like that light bulb goes off and all of a sudden I've got the unfair advantage if I understand yeah. that job and my yeah, competitor exactly. doesn't have exactly. it. My understanding is competitive advantage, and you don't have it, and I know I do, and I can build on that. Yeah. Well, as as part of your work with Competing Against Luck, you obviously spent a lot of time with a great teacher and friend of ours, Bob Mesta, who's uh, been been on this show, so folks have heard him. What was it like to spend time with Bob, and what are some learnings that you took away from him that just totally stick with you to this day? Oh, so many things. I think Bob's a genius. I really do. I think he sees things, uh, pattern recognition. His insights are, are special and unique. I think the problem is there aren't enough Bobs in the world to go around to, to do great job to be done sort of work. But, um, I was actually interviewed by Bob a couple times in, in the, the classic Bob job to be done interview. And so even though I knew what the job to be done process is like and what you're looking for, 
by the end of the first one he did on me, I was sort of weeping with his recognition that he had come out. He had understood something that I hadn't even articulated for, for myself. He, he interviewed me some years ago about my decision to buy um, an Amazon Echo. Um, <laughs> But it was just being the um, beta. You know, we were one of the prime customers who got offered it. And I got it at Christmas time. And I remember I started off the whole explanation that uh, I got it because we needed more music in the house. And, you know, all the old technology was so funky. And it was really going to be a speaker and blah, blah, blah. And by the end of the interview, I recognized that what I really had purchased it for was uh, that it was one more kind of innocent Christmas for my kids, right? So instead of the thing being something on their phones that they looked down and got quiet about for the rest of Christmas Day. We could all have fun as a family, you know, asking silly questions of it, testing it out. My parents were here. It just was an interactive day and moment. It still is. We still laugh when we ask it the weather. And I'm in the room with it now, so I'm not going to say its name because I think it will go off in the background. But <laughs> it, was, it was about somehow preserving another year of the kind of joyous, interactive family Christmas. You know, like when we were little, it was trains and things like that. But so often now what you're giving your kids are things, you know gift cards or something on their phone. And this was something that just allowed us to have a more family Christmas. And I hadn't grokked that at all until he walked me through the interview. And by the end, I was all like, you're right. I just have <laughs> one more wonderful Christmas with my kids. Oh, <laughs> the Bob Master treatment. genius at getting you there without yeah. you understanding where that path is going. So I've learned so much from him, including... He's really great at not falling in love with solution is finding and identifying the job. You know, that's, he doesn't, it's so, we are all so biased and we come with our own ideas and we don't know it. We think we know better. I know even when I was at Harvard Business Review, you know, it was really easy for me to hear the things I wanted to hear in focus groups that we did and kind of ignore the things that didn't fit my theory of what customers really wanted, what readers really wanted. And he is really great at being neutral and following the breadcrumbs until he's come up with a pattern. And I think his, his uh, insights are inspired. I think the way he does the interviews are inspired. I think his examples are inspired. I, I think he's a genius. And he's a fun, nice, decent human being. He's, he's all good things together. Well, we totally agree. And that is one of the best ways to learn about jobs to be done is to be interviewed. And the, and the very first meal I shared with Bob, I mean, it was very quickly an interview about why I bought Sonos speakers. <laughs> and he, he had some kind of a rule, too, a rule that if you're if you're within three feet yeah. of them, he can ask you questions. So if you're like checking out in a Target or whatever, he feels that's completely legitimate. So he's kind of constantly hunting and gathering. And it's pretty, it's pretty, you, the thing, it's almost like a mini therapy session when you go through a job to be done interview because you yep. realize something about yourself that you would not have been able to articulate. If somebody said, why did you buy those speakers? You would have had an answer, but it may not have been what he kind of concluded with you by the end of that was the real answer. And the pieces that might not have been evident are the emotional and social components, which are really powerful and really important. Yeah, tremendous. He goes deep. Well, Karen, tell us about your work with Banyan Global Family Advisors and how have the theories of market creating innovations or, or disruptive innovation theory helped you in that work? Sure. I, I would say it started with why I'm working with them in the first place. It goes back to the theories and how you measure your life. I, I have called myself for years semi-retired. Uh, a very busy, semi-retired person. I write books of clay, continue to be a contributing editor to HBR, but I had constructed a different professional existence. And then a former colleague of mine had been working with Banyan, which is a small consulting firm that focuses only on high net worth family businesses that are trying to make transitions and difficult decisions. It's not about how they, how they 
uh, invest their money. It's about how do we decide if this is a multi-generational family business and who, who gets to decide what and how do we make good decisions together so that we can still choose to be at the Thanksgiving dinner table together and the family doesn't have to fall out. One of my fam- colleagues from Harvard Business Review had been working there and she called me as she was getting ready to retire and said, I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to I'm going to recommend that you talk to my colleagues here at Banyan because I just think you will find the work stimulating. I think you like the people. It's a good fit for you. And in my mind, I'm absolutely not. I don't want a job. I am so happy with my gig economy existence and being a writer. But I sort of agreed to, you know, somewhat reluctantly. And then when I met who are the people who are now my colleagues from Bannon and the work that they do, it just checks all of the boxes that we talked about and how we measure your life on, how you make sure your work has meaning for you and grows you and stretches you and challenges you. It was, it was new learning for me at my age and stage of life. I was working with people who would respect me and value me and the mission I thought was, was appealing and exciting. So I started to, to, I ended up choosing to work at Bannon because it for me was an unexpected growth opportunity at this you know, later stage of my life. So it was, it was true to the work we had written about in measure about how you make good choices about your career. And sometimes they need to be, your strategy needs to be deliberate. And sometimes it needs to emerge, to be emergent. And in this case, it was emergent that I would be able to juggle this with my other work. And it's been really happy. So I'm there really because of uh, living proof of one of the theories we talked about in, in the book, how we measure your life. But Many family businesses, the topic of disruption is relevant. You know, they are X generations into, you know, a family business. Typically, there's an old thing. Most family businesses don't survive the third generation. It's not really true, but it, it's a sort of sense of the fear of, you know, the first generation sees something, the second generation builds it, and the third generation is, is in fear of screwing it up and being disrupted because you could get caught in the world of just doing what you're what the people before you did, you know, without thinking about what competition is. So the theories of disruption are very relevant. How do you make sure you're not disrupted? Theories of uh, jobs to be done, equally relevant. How do we make sure we know our customers better than anyone else? We understand the jobs to be done and we're continually improving to meet that. So all of what I've talked about with Clay is relevant to family businesses that are might be from very small to really large, multi-billion dollar businesses across the world. So it's all been interesting. But the true, the sort of joy for me is the reason I'm there is because it has been a really wonderful growth opportunity at a unexpectedly late stage of my career. What a fulfilling story. That's terrific. So this next question has has been on our minds for a little while, and, and you work closely with Clay. And so we're wondering if maybe you could validate or, or enlighten us on a, a trend or a shift that we think we've identified. So earlier in Clay's theories, he spent a lot more time on the low end part and he's spending a lot more time now on the non-consumption new market creation stuff Uh, so it began as this two-party theory of competition and now he's talking about new markets and new product categories and job creation and increased access for millions of people can you tell us you know what are your thoughts about how clay's definition of disruption has evolved over the years Sure, you. I think you've you've pinned it exactly. Clay would be the first to tell you that the theory of disruption itself has evolved enormously over the years, you know, from his initial um, thesis all the way, you know, through the the it, many iterations in in books. You know, he he constantly is looking to improve his theory and what doesn't explain. And you know, he's got a big wooden sign in his office that says anomalies wanted. He wants that. He wants to make it stronger and better and and, and shape things a little bit. But he would also say that uh, the the word disruption 
has just you know spread like wildfire well beyond his his intention or what the intention of the theory is the theory is really specifically talking about the competitive the the, the defensive strategy that incumbents tend to to veer towards in the face of a, a new entrant a low-end new entrant so it's really just predicting the behavior. And so the idea is if you understand that this is going to be, this is your default is probably going to be this behavior. You're going to go more up market. You're going to try to charge more. You're going to try to hold on to fewer customers, but get more money out of them, making yourself more vulnerable to the disruptive entrance, the new, just good enough, inexpensive product or service. Um, if you understand that's the pattern, you might save yourself from it. It also certainly makes appealing to the disruptors the idea this is the vulnerability. They're going to do that, so I can I can get my way in slowly. But it does just do that. It really just talks about that relative relationship between new entrant, disruptive new entrant, and incumbent. It doesn't tell you how to grow. It doesn't even tell you how to be that successful new entrant. What's your product or service? How do you identify what people care enough about to let to pay for, and and what they don't care enough about is that you can take it out of your product or service. That's what the theory of jobs to be done is, is supposed to help you do is to identify the growth opportunity. So with the theory of disruption, Clay has increasingly wanted to share theories of growth. And so the competing against luck was intended to do that. How do you know what the successful thing is going to be, whether you're disrupting or just wanting to be stronger or better in your existing market or create new markets? And then the new book, Prosperity Paradoxes, how do we, where's real growth possible that we haven't identified that could catalytically change your company, change the landscape around you, change the world? So he's really focused on making sure people have tools for growth as much as they understand what they will probably naturally default to in terms of competitive uh, defensive behavior. Yeah, yeah, we, I, I, that, that's good validation because we, we think we did catch on to that shift from maybe more of a micro to a macro perspective. And it's interesting you said that you know, you talked about Clay's – maybe he's expressed some frustration about the way the word disruption has been used or, or misused <laughs> over over the years. And one thing that we caught on to in the prosperity paradox is that according to the book's index, the word disruption is only used a couple of times. And instead, it's using the word market-creating innovations, which is – very descriptive of that type of work, but it's interesting that there's a shift. Do you think that's intentional? It was intentional because though disruptive innovations can be a market-creating innovation, not all market-creating innovations have to be disruptive innovations. So it can be, for uh. example, one of the one of the best examples in the book is a cheap packaged noodle company called Talaram, or the noodles called Talaram noodles that were um, became a huge success in Nigeria. They didn't create the idea of inexpensive packaged noodles, but by creating the market for it in Nigeria, they created enormous knock-on effects in the economy, fantastic uh, effects in the economy, jobs and infrastructure. They're even playing, playing a role in building a port. So it, 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 disrupts, it doesn't have to be disruptive to create a market. Um, it can be, but so we wanted the bigger umbrella term, which was market-creating innovation. So it, that was deliberate on our part. Great. Great. Uh, yeah, that is good observation, a, though, guys. That was good. Uh, that, you, you picked it up correctly. Good. It's one of Clay's pet peeves that he sees the word disruption used to just just mean any kind of ambitious startup. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, yeah. I, we applaud ambitious startups, but they're not always disruptive. Yeah. And it's sort of it's watered down the meaning. It's turned. I mean, I know I was watching the I think it's Showtime show Silicon Valley. And there was a conference where uh, on this TV show where it's a sort of parody of Silicon Valley, where the crowd starts chanting, you know, disrupt, disrupt, 
I'm like, all right, that has jumped the shark. That the fact that it's now a kind of parody on a on a comedy show about using the word shows it's lost the theoretical underpinnings which are important and serious. It's not that he's, you know, walking away from it. It's just that he would like it to be used properly. Right. But we can also have a good conversation about growth which uses new language. Yeah, we we share that frustration. We sometimes refer to disruption with a lowercase d or disruption with a capital D. Yeah. And and the, yeah, they're different. Actually, that is a good way to do it because yeah. like, you know, it's part of the language and we don't begrudge that. It's more he would like his theory to be used properly in different and different conversations to say, you know, ambition in 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 startups are, is good. We applaud it. It's just not always going to be technically disruptive. Yeah. So to close things out, you've co-authored three books with Clay. How has your approach to writing with Clay evolved? And are there any surprising or even humorous anecdotes you can share with us about that process? Sure. So I guess that's an interesting question. I think over time, we've just developed a really good, we just work very well together. But I think, but I relatively quickly learned, but it's, I think this is valuable for everybody to understand, both about him and about asking questions in your own life. He's, he's a teacher naturally. That is what he's so gifted at in addition to being such a powerful thinker. But the teacher in him wants to make sure people understand what he's talking about. So for me, what became the most uh, effective way to work together was not to have him dictate chapters of a book or draft it. It was for me to ask him a lot of questions to make, cause I'm an average person, but a bright person. Hopefully that I'm not an expert in all the fields he's probably the expert in. It was just, if you can make me understand it and I truly get it, I can help you write this. And so it, a lot of our sessions were just interesting questions. How would that work? Why is that not true? Give me an example. We talk about more things. And so it became really pretty fun because it was sort of together. I would, I would leave every working session having really learned something. And if I had trouble writing it after that session, drafting it, uh, I realized I didn't understand it well enough. So I, I think kind of stripping back our learning to it's okay to ask, not only okay, it's important to ask questions and you have to be able to answer questions. If you can't answer questions that help someone understand a concept that you're trying to explain to them, that that's your fault too. So I think for both sides to recognize the value of connecting with good questions and answered, answers is where you get insight. And so that's what our process became. I know he would say that is that I would just ask questions that would challenge, break, reform, show the aha moment. And, and he is the consummate teacher. So it became, it became really fun to sort of go in there. It was like having a great tutorial, you know, every, every time. And I felt so privileged to be, you know, in the front seat of, you know, the Clay Christensen experience. I sat in his office for many, many, many hours getting this one-on-one kind of great collaborative session with one of the world's, you know, great thinkers. It, it was really just a gift. That's wonderful. Well, Karen, what's next for you? What's on the horizon? Well, I'm actually uh, working a lot with the FOSA, my co-author, uh, and Clay, but to try to spread the word for prosperity paradox. We really want to make sure people understand the power of these ideas. We're, we're doing a lot of speaking about it. So right now, we're, we're just trying to spread the word. So in the short term, that's what's next on the horizon. And I continue my work at Banyan, which is a great joy. So I have a really nice balance of working with colleagues I love who are growing and stretching me and working on a project I love with the Bosa and Clay on the prosperity paradox to try to spread the word so people have these tools, just like I got the gift of having these tools to make a reshaping of my own life from how we measure your life. We're hoping we can offer people some, some the theories as tools for them as well. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, Karen, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been a delight. 
It has been my pleasure. Thank you guys so much for your interest. Yeah, this has been an awesome conversation. We appreciate it. Well, again, thanks to all of our supportive listeners. Please remember to subscribe to and share this podcast. And if you haven't already, go buy The Prosperity Paradox and Competing Against Luck and How You Measure Your Life for yourself and a friend. This is Ben Tingey. Till we meet again. thing but you were one of the stories i use about the job to be done of twitter right because you and i have never been in person um i you and i have connected over twitter in a really meaningful way i told twitter the story i think i told you that for me it's one of those jobs to be done that who knew that that was what twitter could do but that's one of the really cool things that came out of jobs to be done is like you can make truly meaningful personal professional connections because you share something like this and and that that's one of my favorite things so i'm delighted to be able to to be on your podcast because you're one of my like favorite things that came out of the past you know x years of working on projects <laughs> oh that's 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 terrific to hear that's Jay's good. turning red